Mighty God and Everlasting Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the self-revelation of yourself to us. We look to you, O Lord, as we begin this new journey through the book of Genesis and ask that you would aid us, strengthen us, and solidify in our minds an understanding concerning the manner in which you desire we know how you are and how you work. We pray, O God, that you would lend to us much of the power of the Holy Spirit, that he might minister to us the word itself, that he might minister to us your wonderful attributes that we are going to look at concerning these introductory verses and help us to have a deeper and greater knowledge of the God who created all things, the sovereign, omnipotent one of the universe. Might it be that that would be ministry to our soul, that it might not simply be a pithy sermon or some catchy quote but actually the sovereign God of the universe being ministered to us. We pray, O Lord, that you would strengthen us in this time, that you would aid in the unction that's being set in your preaching, that you would aid in the hearing, that you would help us to receive and to preach your word in a manner which is becoming of you. We ask that it would be your truth that we cling to. Help us, O God, in these things, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are beginning the book of Genesis, in which we are going to read only the first verse, and we're going to be looking at this verse this morning in a different light than we would regularly look at some of the texts that we have been studying. And we're also going to deal with it in a manner in which we talk a little bit about just some of the introductory ideas that we need to be thinking about in terms of the book of Genesis as we go through and study it. Let's read together and and look at Genesis 1 and only verse 1. God's word says to us, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The book itself, the nature of the book itself, is a religious book. Genesis itself is not set down to give us a scientific rendering of the universe. Instead, God, in his great wisdom, began the revelation of his character by beginning with a book of beginnings, which is where we get the word Genesis. The beginnings. The beginnings. Genesis was not written so that men would just have a scientific order of how things were created or a scientific cosmology about things, but about every intricacy of creation or about the beginnings of man. When you look to Genesis, you have some of the fundamental questions that we have, just where people would ask certain fundamental questions. You find the answers in the the book of Genesis. Where did everything come from? Where did man come from? Where did sin come from? How old is the universe? All of the 
beginning questions are answered in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. It's a religious book. It's a religious book first and foremost, which is really concerned about the relationship between God and his creation, especially the preservation of the covenant family and his work in that family. The way that this book is actually set up, if you were to look at the structure of the book, it's divided into 11 sections of genealogy. There's 11 sections of the Hebrew word toledot, or the generations of, with an introduction about how those genealogies first come to light as a result of God's creation. God is the supreme and majestic sovereign creator over all things. That's what, in part, this first verse communicates to us. He created everything from beginning to end. Before he had created anything, it was only gone. There was no space or time. There was no world. There was no creation. It was only him. And God, as a result of his sovereign power, created, as this first verse says, the heavens and the earth. But the structure of Genesis revolves around somewhat of a different structure, the generations or the histories, or it may even mean simply the descendants of these various genealogical lines, is how Moses, being the writer of Genesis, sets this up by the carrying of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately the scriptures being the inspired word, are set up in that particular manner by the Spirit. He wanted us to know that these are the generations. And this is the way that the book is is set down. Creation is set in chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. But after that, we find these various generations. The Toledot, or generations of the heavens and earth, in chapter 2, verse 4, through 4, verse 26. Then after that, we have the generations of Adam, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, verse 8. Then there's the generation of Noah, in 6, 9 to 9, 29. Then the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth in chapter 10, 1 to 11, 9. Then more particularly, the generation of Shem in chapter 11, 10 to verse 26. Then there's the generations of Terah, which is the Abrahamic narrative and everything that happens with Abram and his change of name to Abraham and all that happens from chapter 11, verse 27 through 2511. Then there are the generations of Ishmael in chapter 25, 12 to 18. Then the generations of Isaac, 25, 19 to 35, 29. Then the generations of Esau, the father of Edom in Genesis 36, 1 to 37, 1. And then we find through the rest of the book, the generation of Jacob, Genesis 37.2 through chapter 50 and verse 26. It's divided into families, and it surrounds the family relationship, covenantally speaking, in its relationship to God. 
It describes the decreed plan of God's covenant people. So the entire book, and it's set in this context that Genesis was written to know the purpose of creation and the purpose of man before the living God. It's a history of the creation of the world. That is what Genesis is. And it depicts creation only as a means by which the creator would be more clearly seen by accommodating who he is and what he does to creation in his power. In the power of God and the majesty of his character, creation itself sets forth a testimony of who he is and what he's capable of. The book of Genesis is profoundly covenantal as the means whereby God condescended to reveal himself in such a manner. And that particular note we'll speak on more later and not specifically this morning. Instead, with that structure set in your mind, we're still left with the very first verse. And the very first verse is really simply a summary of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This particular verse gives us much to think about. It describes for us, one, God is the creator. Two, everything else is created. Three, that God is completely other than his creation. He was and then created other things. And as a result, we have the heavens and the earth. And the histories of the heavens of the earth is what the rest of the scriptures demonstrate to us. That is what the Bible is about. It's God's self-disclosure to us, but this first verse sets up the rest of the scriptures. The Bible never begins with attempting to prove the existence of God. As a result, it just simply gives a self-revelation of him. If, if God was going to begin the scriptures, the self-revelation of himself in some way, what would he do? What he did do was set down Genesis in the very way that he did. He began it by simply stating what he did. In the beginning, he created everything. Now, in the history of mankind, there have been a number of philosophies that have attempted to explain the nature of the universe. There have been all sorts of people throughout history who attempt to bring together ideas and myself being a doctor of philosophy and theology, it would be impossible for me to not begin with giving you a little taste of philosophy and after I go through some of these ideas. I think you'll see why I'm doing this on purpose. Because in dealing with such an important verse in Genesis 1.1, it's important to see in contrast to what God says as to how men entangle themselves in trying to come up with all sorts of various ideas and giving an explanation as to where the universe had come from. 
if you were God, how would you begin your revelation of yourself to creation? God did it with Genesis 1.1. And to see how important that question is, I'm going to turn back the clock for a moment, and I want us to look at, with a little trip back in time, from a specific point in time, moving forward with some of the greatest thinkers that have ever lived, revolving around scientific discovery and philosophy and where they, thought, where they thought the universe came from. So we start here. On May 28, 585 B.C., at specifically 6.13 p.m., philosophy was born. Philosophy was born at that particular time. Thales, a philosopher at that time, predicted an eclipse of the sun. He was, in fact, the first philosopher and scientist that the world had ever known. And to make his prediction, he had to understand the idea of law, and that there were laws governing the universe. He was interested primarily in why things change. He wanted to get back to the root of what makes things permanent in the universe and try to discover what it was that holds everything together. He was searching for what he, he thought was the basic stuff of the universe. What was it made out of and how was it put together? Now, his idea was that the entire universe was made out of water in some form or another. Some believed that it was there. Some believed that it was a combination of elements, earth, air, fire, and water. But that's what he thought. He thought everything was put together through water. After him, another gentleman came along by the name of Heraclitus. And he thought the universe was made up of the basic stuff of what he called cosmic fire. He went on to say, profoundly for his day, that laws don't ever change. They always remain constant. They always remain the same. But what was cosmic fire? Heraclitus had no idea. Pythagoras came after him and began to teach a difference between the body and the soul. Something material and something immaterial. He was the first to make up what uh, people in reincarnation call the transmigration of the soul. And Plato ultimately took off with this idea. He introduced this spiritual matter idea. But still, that spiritual matter in some way was made up of some kind of physical matter. So, even though he introduced a new element to the whole question, he still didn't really get any further than some of his others, like Thales and Heraclitus. So, Parmenides, he came on the, on the scene and... He was the first rationalist of philosophy. He said the laws of logic and reason are laws of reality, and we have to follow them if we're going to know anything about the universe. So he equated the laws that were out there, these permanent laws, with things that were real. So he brought in this idea that in order for us to really think about anything rightly, we have to rely on these laws. And these laws of reality will dictate to us how the universe was actually created. But again, didn't come up with an ultimate decision. And Axagoras came up after him, and he introduced the idea of things being infinite. 
there's an infinite number of different elements. Now think about that. Now, Anaxagoras isn't everywhere. He's not on every planet, not in every space. As a matter of fact, he can't even traverse the entire world that he lives in. And he thinks that there is an infinite number of elements. Well, he introduces this idea of infinite. Even though the material universe is not infinite, it is limited, it is finite, he still thought that there were these infinite number of elements which he called seeds. And he said these seeds, these basic things of the universe, they're always changing and they're always becoming something. So he introduced this idea of the problem of becoming introduced. There was a problem now, though, because how can something become something unless it had a specific being to itself first? So they had to fix this problem. They now had to explain how something actually existed, not just what the world was made up of. Now we're talking about being, the idea of being itself. No one could come up with an answer to this, what things were, what things be, how were they being. They couldn't come up into it, it was until a few new fellows came on the scene at about 400 B.C. Four men popped on, Protagoras, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And these four introduced some interesting elements. Protagoras, he said that man is the measure of all things. And at that point, a new philosophy called relativism officially took place and was birthed. And here, morality began to be discussed. So now we have not only how things are made up, what's the universe made up of, but now not only what its essential being is, but now we're popping in with interesting ideas of morality. Because morality demonstrated something more than just existence. It demonstrated accountability. So Plato himself, though, refuted Protagoras right off the bat. He said to him, why do you pick a man? to be the measure of all things. Why don't you pick a dog, or a giraffe, or an ant? Relativism in and of itself is self-defeating because it is relative. What if people think Protagoras is crazy? Well, then their particular measure of all things is different than his particular measure of all things. They think he's nuts, and all of his theories are nuts, so that suddenly discombobulates everything Protagoras was talking about. So relativism doesn't work. So Socrates came on the scene, and he started dealing with questions of ultimate reality, trying to study this idea of the one and the many, the difference between the world of multiplicity and change and the world of stability and permanence. He knew that there was something out there that was stable, something out there that was permanent, which everything had to come from. Now, he seems to be a little bit more on track. He believed in absolute truth. He believed that there was an ultimate truth out there and that everything had to come from that ultimate standard, but Socrates really never made the touchdown. And his philosophy went awry in a number of different places. And Plato popped into the scene at that point and took Socrates a bit farther. Plato said that there was a world different than ours. And this other world is called the world of the forms. 
the immaterial, eternal, uncreated pattern, this archetype of this world. For example, you're sitting in a chair. All of you would attest that what you're sitting in is a kind of chair, a seating device. There is a chair over here that's different. There is a smaller chair here that's different. They're all chairs. They all have the underlying attribute of chairiness. Plato said, see, in the world of the forms, in the immaterial, eternal, uncreated archetype, there is one perfect chair, of which all other chairs are simply a pattern of. That is in the upper world, and we are in the lower world. Just like you would write down on a piece of paper the number one. It could be a one in this way, or a one in that way, or a one with an I, or a one with just a straight line, or a one with a one and a dot, or a fat one, or a skinny one, but they're all one. There is an ultimate one in the world of the forms. So this upper world and this lower world gives these men, Plato in particular, the ability to say that there's something in which everything here has a pattern after. So Plato's point is, is that the world here didn't create itself. Plato went the farthest so far in that he said that the ultimate form of the universe, that everything derives from its idea, from the perfect good. That's what he called the ultimate. He called it the perfect good. And he wasn't exactly sure what that was. But this perfect good is the creating and sustaining cause of the universe. But where did the good come from? Plato asked himself. Where did that come from? It has to come from somewhere. So to make a universe, Plato came up with this idea. To make a universe from the good, you need to have four things. But these four things were part of the universe ultimately and didn't transcend the universe in any way. So Plato is already at this point blowing it. But he said anyway, that you need four things. One, you need the world of the forms. Number two, you need matter. Now, what matter was, he had no idea. He didn't have any clue as to what matter ultimately was. He just says you needed matter. You need this cosmic stuff. Now, if you have this cosmic stuff, you have matter, you also need, number three, a cosmic oven. Really, he said this. You need a cosmic oven. And to be able to take this matter and basically bake it in the right way to come up with the universe, you need to have what Plato called the craftsman. And the craftsman was a finite super being that was able to take this matter and put it together, bake it in this oven, and come up with the universe. Where did all this stuff ultimately come from? Plato... His craftsman is limited to what he can work with. He's limited to what he can know. And he's limited with the stuff. But he didn't know where the stuff came from. Ultimately, he had no idea. Finally, Aristotle came on the scene. And he came up with a completely different way of thinking about things. Everything he said could be explained from the material world. 
All you have to do is break down the essential parts of particular things and you can figure things out. He completely denied existence after death. He was what we would call a naturalist. He said that there was no ultimate anything, but rather that the mind was the ultimate. He was stumped many times in his understanding of the universe since he relied totally on his mind and as the mind being ultimate power. Because if the mind is ultimate power, it should have the ability to create everything. So, to explain things that he couldn't explain otherwise, he conveniently made up what he called little gods to help him out. And he called these little gods unmoved movers. They were basically the same ideas surrounding what Plato had said concerning the world of the forms. And there's something else out there that makes a pattern for these things. And from these unmoved movers, and Aristotle said specifically that there were 56 of them. How he came up with 56, we'll never know. But there were 56 of these unmoved movers in these different categories to create these different things. And basically, it's the same thing that Plato said. Well, since I need something to help me out here so I don't go against the laws of reason, I need something higher than the universe to finish my understanding of things, but I really don't believe that they're there, is basically the way Aristotle tried to figure things out. Now, he did help somewhat with coming up with understanding things like cause and effect and how they relate, but he totally blew it when it came to the construction of the universe because he had no real answer. And this is the problem. Even when you deal with all of the philosophies that run around today, including the evolutionary theory that everybody seems to cling to, at least uh, those in the school systems, when you deal with things like that, they don't have an answer for where this stuff came from. The greatest philosophers on the planet were trying to come up with things like seeds and things like cosmic fire and things like the world of the forms, and things like a cosmic oven that is utilized by a craftsman who takes the basic stuff of the universe, patterns it after the world of the forms, and bakes up things like chairs and skies and trees and ants and rocks and so forth. But the first real account of the creation of the universe, 500 years before the first philosopher ever came on the scene, Moses wrote down, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 500 years before these nitwits were ever around. It was already penned and already circulating in the covenant community of God's people that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the very first initial act of creation. The Hebrew word means in the beginning or beginnings and demonstrates to us that the world had a particular point in which God created it. A philosopher once asked Augustine, why did your Christian God wait so long before he created the world? What was he doing? And Augustine replied, he was preparing hell for people who asked stupid questions like that. God created the heavens and the earth. And at a particular time, he did that. And that is where the scriptures begin. All the Bible demonstrates is that in the beginning, there was nothing but God himself. And then from his creative act, the world and everything in it 
was created. God, or Elohim, the plurality of the Godhead, unity and plurality at the same time. This word is a Trinitarian reference. can easily be seen here because of the immediate context as well as seen in verse 2. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, in, uh, actually in another sermon. But John 1.1 1, 1 and Hebrews 1.2 demonstrate that all the members of the Trinity were involved in creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything that was created was created through the Word. Well, here, with this word God, there is a plural meaning to the word Elohim, but it is used singularly of the Almighty God. So there's already, from the very beginning, in the very first verse, a plurality and unity in terms of the Creator. We'll talk more about that creator in sermons to come. This creator, though, created. He brought into existence the universe. And this represents, in this first verse, a very clearly defined theology. And it lends itself to the, cre- to the concept of creation ex nihilo, the creation out of nothing. God was, and there was nothing else, and he created everything else. God's creative power has the ability to put into existence things that weren't existing before. The language is bara, by which is signified the bringing into existence anything out of nothing. The law of inertia, the laws of science. We know that science in and of itself says Ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Well, that's true. That's why all of these other theories and all of these other vain philosophies couldn't come up with an answer. If you're looking to the thing itself, the thing itself cannot bring about the thing itself. There has to be something to create it. Nothing cannot create something. True indeed, and if there was simply nothing... There would still be simply nothing. Nothing cannot make something. But as the scripture says from the very beginning, God is not nothing. God is not only something, he is the ultimate creator of everything. And it says that he created the heavens and the earth. In a profoundly religious sense, even in, to a certain extent, a cosmological sense, sense, still, in a profoundly religious sense, that verse is written. It's not written as a scientific textbook again. It's written as a religious textbook, uh, uh, one of relationship. The earth, the heavens, and everything that is contained in them is totally and completely and utterly under the control of divine sovereignty. He created all things. Moses didn't use the term the star to form, but he used bara to create. God is sovereign over everything. He has power over everything to bring everything that exists into existence. Naturalism in and of itself that says there's nothing outside this box like Aristotle did is self-defeating. Aristotle's philosophy in and of itself demonstrates that because he couldn't go any further. He had to create 56 unmoved movers. 
He had to create some other gods to help him out. Naturalism is self-defeating. The philosophers didn't seek an answer outside of the known universe. They couldn't. It was impossible for them to come up with something. Moses says, you are assuming things you can't prove. In fact, they are unprovable from the get-go since the universe was created and it wasn't formed. They kept trying to come up with how the universe was formed, how it was put together, what it was made up of, seeds or cosmic fire or water or earth or whatever. Moses says, you're thinking wrongly right from the beginning. The world was created, and it was created by the sovereign God of the universe. This is the way that God begins his book of beginnings. He doesn't begin with, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is the most important verse in all of the Bible. Why? Because it assumes God and then demonstrates his character, his law, his work, and the relationship of everything else to him. The rest of the Bible is simply an application and an explaining of this particular verse. That is what I want us to walk away with this morning. This verse is the most important verse in all of the scripture. It is the manner in which the creator of the universe disclosed himself to us first. Everything past it is grace. Everything past it in his self-revelation is a help to understanding what that verse means. And we're going to pick it apart as we deal with it over a couple of weeks. But, in taking the text and applying it to us today, generally and primarily with this first overview, God as creator is really axiomatic to life in general. It's the central point. God as creator. If the universe was created by seeds or air or water or whatever... That God, little g, that God of sorts is owed obedience. That God of sorts is owed worship. Whatever it is that created everything is owed obedience simply because of the act of creation itself. And that that God has the power to bring into existence everything that does exist, everything that does owes obedience to it. We have in the confession the question, what is God? In the larger catechism, the answer, God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That is a summary of Genesis 1.1 we'll see that the very book of Genesis, in and of itself, not even having to travel outside of different areas in the Bible, but just that the book of Genesis itself explains who this God is who created everything. Everything you want to know about God is contained in that book. The gospel is contained in that book. Paul says in Galatians that 
to Abraham was preached the gospel. We'll find the holiness of God in that book. We'll find the love of God in that book. We will find the justice and judgment of God, the power of God, the creative wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the omnipresence of God, the self-revelation of God. Everything about God is in the book of Genesis. There is nothing that is in Genesis that anything else in the rest of Scripture could illuminate us to that is not first there. And beloved, if, we, if the scripture we read today is true, if in the beginning God created the, in the heavens and the earth, then that necessarily implies that all of these other nonsensical philosophies are in fact vain. It would be a vain thing to suppose what these half-witted philosophers thought or tried to come up with, with a way to rid themselves of the necessity of knowing what their relationship to God was. That is their purpose. That is essentially what pagan philosophy is all about. Getting rid of God and explaining the universe and everything in it by the measure of man. If you visit Harvard Yard, you would go and you would see on their building, on the philosophy building, Harvard University was thinking about what they should put right there engraved in the stone above the steps of the building so everybody coming in and everybody going out would have. Well, the particular man who was head of this project was a Christian man. Uh, everybody had voted that what should go up there is exactly what we talked about a few minutes ago, that man is the measure of all things. A, a great philosophical quotation. That's what should go on the building of philosophy. Well, the letter bearers, the carvers, were going to come in the week of vacation, and everybody was gone. And so, as a result, the Christian man who was heading this up went to these men and said, we've changed it, I want you to put something else up there. And as these other philosophy professors returned after vacation, they looked up, hoping to see man is the measure of all things, and found instead... Who is man that thou art mindful of him? Instead was placed this scripture verse that demonstrated the vanity of man's thoughts. Who is man? We look through the scriptures, we know that man is depraved. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Essentially, pagan philosophy wants to rid God out of their philosophy and explain the universe and everything in it by the measure of man. But unfortunately, they are, fortunately they're quite wrong. Unfortunate for them, because they are deceiving themselves with things that they cannot answer and cannot come up with. They might as well believe in 56 unmoved movers and little gods to help them out of their philosophical ideas. Instead, the Bible teaches that there is a God who created the universe. That there is a first act of disclosure of this God that accomplished this creation. An unmistakable act of his being is what creation is. And then the next step we have is to know what kind of God he is and to know what our relationship before him is. 
That's the next question. If I was a philosopher at that time and I said, where did everything come from? And then we had the answer, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next question that should be on my mind is that, what is my relationship to this God? Because he's the creator of everything. What is my relationship before him? For everything created owes its existence to the creator and owes worship of that creator. So you have to ask some of these questions. When you read the first scripture, when you read the first verse of the Bible, you have to ask, what is your relationship to this God? What does he require of you? What does he want you to be? How does he want you to act? Are you listening to this God? Do you believe in him? And remember that that makes no difference as to his, his existence one way or the other. Whether or not I believe in God or don't believe in God doesn't negate the reality that God exists. Whether one believes or not makes no difference. Philosophers for centuries have continually repackaged the same vain philosophies in order to disregard ultimate questions. They don't want to ask these questions. What is my relationship to the creator of the universe? Am I listening to this God? Am I following this God? How well am I following this God? Do I really believe in this God? But this is the most important verse in the Bible pressing us to consider those questions. It is the main thesis of the scriptures. The sovereign God of the universe. What is my relationship to him? That is the main thesis of the entire scripture. And that comes out of the main reason why God created the heavens and the earth was for his glory. Which is why the shorter catechism begins with that question, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? It, it moves from who created the universe to, okay, now why are we here? It's a relationship question. That's why it begins that way. The answer to that is, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God created the heavens and the earth that men may enjoy him, but that they might first glorify him. And in these weeks to come, we're going to look first at the doctrine of God, right out of the book of Genesis, Beginning with this verse, we're going to spend some time with this verse, so I would encourage you in your spare devotional time to read through the book of Genesis and see some of the amazing things that talk about and demonstrate who the creator of the universe is. Because it ultimately brings us to ask ultimate questions. The philosophers weren't wrong to ask questions, but they were wrong where they ended up. Might it be that we would ask the right questions and get the right answers from God himself? That is what God is telling us first in Genesis. Let's pray together. Mighty God, you are the everlasting Father, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity in whom all of creation exists. It's difficult, O oh Lord, even to look at this first verse and not desire to go off into a thousand different directions that we could go off into and explore. And we pray, Lord, that as we are 
suddenly confronted with this first verse, in which the rest of the scriptures are basically a commentary of, that we would look to this verse, Lord, and find out some of the ultimate questions that we should be asking ourselves. What is our relationship with this God? The God who created the heavens and the earth. We are part of the heavens and the earth. We owe you, the creator, the sovereign, omnipotent one, worship. Help us, O oh God, as we think through the doctrine of God, as we think through the book of Genesis, as we think through your initial self-disclosure of yourself for your glory to us, what our response to you should be. Let it be that your majesty, your sovereignty, and your power would set in our hearts throughout this week, that we would be reminded as we see all of the various things that have been created, that you are the sovereign creator. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless us throughout the rest of this Lord's Day and ask for your grace and mercy through Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said, 
that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.